Welcome to the Lindsay Hadley Podcast Show. I'm coming to you from the North Shore of Oahu, where weekly I interview some of the world's most inspiring people from business, philanthropy, and entertainment. I love collecting humans, and these are some of my favorites I've found along the way. This podcast is brought to us by Capita Financial Network. Do you need help with the next steps of your financial plan? Think Capita. Capita is a financial network built around you. They have a team of financial advisors, CPAs, estate attorneys, Medicare providers, and social security experts to help you accomplish your financial goals. Call or schedule a complimentary consultation at 801-566-5058 or visit their website at capitafinancialnetwork.com. You can also check out their financial education podcast, The Financial Call, available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and YouTube. Hi, Mike Glauser. Thanks for being on our Capita podcast show today. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Lindsay, and I'm very excited to chat with you today. Likewise, Mike. So I'm really thrilled to, you're actually my second guest on this podcast series, um, Capital Financial Network, which is the sponsor of this entire program, was so wonderful to ask me to sit down with some of the greatest minds and highest achievers that are accomplishing amazing things, but also have incredible, not just capacity, but incredible uh, character. And you came uh, highly recommended by several friends. And so I'm super thrilled to have you on today. Thank you so much for being here. Well, I'm honored to be with you. I think we'll have fun. So, Absolutely, Mike. So um, I'm so thrilled for you to tell a little bit of your story. And I, just so you know, I understand you run the entrepreneurship program, right? At Utah State, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And so the story about you starting out as a professor and realizing, wait a minute, I don't have any lived experience as an entrepreneur to be teaching this is incredibly, um, I would just say, uh, audacious and amazing and self-aware. I'm biased because I actually taught at uh, Brigham Young University of Hawaii in the entrepreneurship program. I was a visiting professor and taught social entrepreneurship and leadership classes this last year. And I had a beautiful experience where I live here in Oahu. And it was amazing. And all of, and I didn't have a master's degree and I, you know, didn't have the academic pedigree. I just had 20 years of experience as an entrepreneur. And I remember, um, it was really, really flattering. But when I went to leave from the time that I was there, the students like unbeknownst to me started this letter writing campaign, trying to ask the president to have me stay because they they thought that I was going it it wasn't what they thought but they they thought I was going um mostly because of my uh lack of of academic pedigree and they were they they consistently said as students we'd rather hear from people that have real experience than just you know have read about it in books and so I think it was a really interesting um they were advocating for me to stay and 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 for this different paradigm. And I and I thought that was really flattering to hear back from hundreds of students that that's what they valued most was real experience. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that journey for you. And you've gone on to be a remarkably successful entrepreneur. You've written several books about entrepreneurship. I mean, you were kind of the king of entrepreneurs. So this is like really fun to have you on today. So tell me a little bit about that journey. Yeah, I'm so thrilled. So when I was younger, I fell in love with the concept of creating organizations, human organizations, and I thought it would be a a great skill set to know how to build organizations that could effectively achieve objectives, efficiently achieve important objectives, but more important, be really wonderful places to work, places where people would want to work and they would want to come even if they didn't have to. 
And so I started off on an academic quest. I did uh, a mas- uh, bachelor's, master's, and PhD very quickly, um, which I, I look back and say that was probably a mistake. But I was 27 years <laughs> old. And I was a brand new professor at the University of North Carolina. And I walked into my first class. It was an executive MBA class. And I, with a lot of bravado, I wrote my name, Dr. Glauser, on the board and turned around. And the students were probably 15 to 20 years older than I was. Uh, they were executives from the furniture industry, the insurance industry, uh, all from North Carolina. And, and I realized very quickly that if, if I ever wanted to be a thought leader in this field, I needed to leave that safe harbor of academics and, and go out and see if I could build real companies. And, you know, that was kind of frightening because, you know, I'm a young guy with a PhD and I go out and I build, try to build companies and I fail. Then I go back to the university. Now I'm the guy that reads a lot of books, but I failed at actually trying to build companies. So, so that was a, a fun challenge. But you know, over a period of a dozen years, we built a number of companies, and uh, they were successful. And a couple of them we sold to a publicly traded company. And and so then I then I've gone back to my consulting work and academics after that experience. That's so amazing. Again, incredibly self aware. And uh, incredibly thoughtful to, I guess, a heart of generosity towards others because you thought, well, can I really give these affairs if I don't have this experience? I think that's really incredible. And you also have the amazing academic pedigree. That's what a gift you would be. I wish I could, could have had you as a professor in college, <laughs> but I'm so thrilled I can read your books and, and learn more from you today. You, you spoke about um, in your book that when you were acquired by the publicly traded company, um, uh, I think I think it was in your book or potentially an interview you shared that they, that he was studying you for a year and noticed uh, certain principles or patterns of thinking and way of operating your way of being as a as a leader and an entrepreneur that really made him want to buy your company. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, it was you know this was a big experiment in excellence. We wanted to be the envy of an industry, and we were in the frozen dessert industry. We were the first really in the country, probably in the world, to create a whole line of frozen dessert products like ice creams and yogurts with no fat in them at all. And we knew they had to to taste great. They had to taste like a Ben & Jerry's ice cream. They couldn't be, you know, uh, bitter. And, you know, there's a, there are pseudo-health people that want to be healthy, but they won't compromise taste. And we wanted to appeal to that broader market. And so we, uh, we created a fabulous product line of 30 incredible products. We, we did, we did not franchise, um, because we didn't want the cost structure. We wanted to be a lean organization. So they were all company owned stores. Uh, we had a great incentive system where we shared the earnings with our employees and our team leaders. And so we built this really cool company and, you know, little beknownst to me, there were three companies that actually came to me to make offers on our business. We never advertised that it was for sale. And, um, we chose a company, a publicly traded company, traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange and uh, sold the company. And wow. then I went on to do other things. That's amazing. And so they were studying your company. What was it? Was it the fact that you were sharing with your profits with employees? Was it the quality of customer service, the product? Was it all of those things? You were an industry leader and they were just watching you continue to lead. Was that the disruption? Well, one one of the offers was from a company in Las Vegas and he just wanted to diversify his portfolio and he loved our products. He was eating our products continually. (laughs) Another one was from Mrs. Fields and they were also trying to diversify their portfolio. Um, 
So Mrs. Fields Cookies made an offer. And the one that bought the company, they wanted the product line. They had a, they were buying especially food companies in the United States and in Canada. And they had this incredible uh, management system and distribution system, and they were publicly traded. And they, they just raised $30 million on the uh, Toronto Stock Exchange. And they wanted, they wanted our distribution. They wanted the distribution to our wholesale customers, and they wanted the distribution to our retail customers. So it was a, an industry purchase and uh, seemed like a good choice for us at the time. That's amazing. So cool that you got an offer from Mrs. Fields. My, Debbie Fields, uh, the founder of Mrs. Fields Cookies, was my neighbor growing up, and her daughter, Jennifer, was one of my best friends as a child. Oh, so cool. I, legitimately, I got to eat homemade baked cookies from Mrs. Fields as a kid. That <laughs> was pretty cute. We'd be home on a Saturday, and she'd make them for us. It was awesome. Her <laughs> offer was really attractive. It was actually more than what I ended up selling for, but... Um... They wanted to pay half up front and then have me continue for two years with some performance requirements. And I, I really, I'd already decided I didn't, I didn't want to run a company I didn't own. And the other company, uh, they were going to move our headquarters uh, somewhere and they really didn't need my executive staff. And so I was able to leave quickly. And That, that um, makes sense. It worked out fine. That's wonderful. So. You came back to academia, you started teaching with all this experience, and you've written two books. Can you tell me a little bit about your books and your journey back to academia? Did you start again as a professor and then work your way up to be the head of entrepreneurship at a, a very well-known university? No, I. when we sold the company, I just I went back to my consulting practice. I was a, a, speaker, a keynote professional speaker, an author, and a business consultant for quite a while. And then I was on the board of advisors of uh, the business school at Westminster College. And they asked me if I would build a center for entrepreneurship there, which I did. And then the dean of the Hudson School of Business at Utah State said, hey, we want one of those here. And so I actually went there thinking I'd stay three to maybe five years max. And oh, I just wow. seeing my 12th year at the Hudson School. <laughs> and so I, you're I enjoying it. I love it. <laughs> Dean is a remarkable guy. He's an amazing dean. The faculty is strong. Our our focus is uh, on the students. You know, we write and publish, but if we're not good in the classroom, there's there's no place for us at Utah State. And I just mm. the culture. I love the colleague, my colleagues. I love the students, and so each year I just keep going back. That's incredible, Mike. You know, it's funny. I think we what I noticed, and the students communicated this to us, but the entrepreneurs who were independently. Um, financially secure from the, the resident entrepreneurs or professors who had had other outcomes uh, financially in their lives. They just had a different, um, like the priority was the students because it wasn't the remuneration of the job in any way, shape or form. Does that make sense? And the students really felt that the difference of like, you don't have to be here to get paid to like for your livelihood, like you're you're here because you want to, because you care about us and you're passionate about the subject, and you're passionate about teaching, and they felt the difference. They communicated that to me many times. Yeah, our dean is uh, Doug Anderson, who's his PhD's from Harvard, and he taught at Harvard for ten years and uh, ran a consulting firm. He's a great friend. We sit down each year. We say, "Hey, I like you. Do you still like me? Yeah, I like you. Okay, let's do it again." And, and so we just <laughs> keep going. It's a very informal relationship, but it's a very positive positive Wonderful. for me to be there. Oh, that's and, amazing. Uh, you know, we have, 
we've built a great center for entrepreneurship, but we're building our international poverty alleviation program, which is the thing that I'm most interested in right now. It's our kind of our capstone program for uh, student entrepreneurs. So it's a great experience being there. That's amazing. Mike, I'm so glad you brought that up. That was literally, I was going to segue into that and ask you about this. I've been told that this program is just totally life-changing and I'm, again, jealous I didn't have this experience as a college student and want my kids to go through this uh, program. And I understand that you don't have to be a student at Utah State to participate. Can you tell us about this program, what it's doing? I mean, what a life-changing um, paradigm this must be for these young people. Yeah, it's, the program's called SEED, S-E-E-D, Small Enterprise Education and Development. And we recruit students from uh, every major at Utah State. We've had over 50 majors participate. Uh, students from other universities are welcome, BYU, BYU-Idaho, University of Utah, Weber State, uh, Ensign College, Westminster College. And uh, it's, it's, it's a two-semester program, so it's a school year program. The first semester... Uh, and we select them competitively. We have lots of applicants and we don't really look at GPA. We look at other things and uh, we select these students and then we train them for one full semester in the skills of entrepreneurship and small business development, and microfinance. And they get really good at teaching classes and mentoring people that are starting small businesses. You know, these aren't, these aren't big, scalable, sophisticated companies. They're kind of one right. step above the lemonade stand because we teach yes. people that live in so we have finance majors, marketing majors, engineering majors, music majors, psychology majors, graphic designers. And so they get really good at teaching, you know, how do you start and launch? How do you vet a business idea? How do you start and launch that? How do you get some seed capital? How do you hire people? Uh, how do you market? And, and then after that semester of training, they go live somewhere in the world uh, for a full semester there. So we have apartments or houses all over the world and they go live and they actually teach people that live in poverty how to start and build and scale small companies. And um, we keep good records on who we work with. And so the next group of students come in this next semester and we pick right up where the previous ones left off. So we will mentor small business owners for months and even years until they have success. And wow. we have... Uh, in most countries that we're in, after one year of this training, the household income doubles. So 100% increase in household income. They might go from earning 200 US dollars a month to 500 US dollars a month, which really takes them out of the poverty class in, in you know, Latin America and Asia and uh, Africa and the countries which we serve. So, so it's a phenomenal. Wow. Yeah, we just, in fact, next week I'm leaving. No, let's see. This week I'm leaving for. Cambodia, and then I'll go to Cebu in the Philippines, and then I'll spend time in Manila. And so we visit these countries um, several times each year, and we have phenomenal partners that they find us the people to teach. So they're, they're aftercare centers who have rescued women from the slave trade. They are uh, churches like the Catholic Church or the LDS Church. They're government entities. So these partners uh, bring us all the students. We teach in their facilities, and then we, we mentor uh, as well as teach. We mentor one-on-one -on -one as well as teaching classes. That's such a stunning statistic, Mike. Did you say 100% double their income through the program? Yeah, pretty much in every country uh, within a year, wow. they, they doubled household income or more, yes. And we that have, so you know, we have a couple. 
Yeah. We have a couple of uh, clients. Uh, one is now earning 5000 US dollars a month. Or, or the, the, her sale in 5000 Another has about wow. 10000 US dollars in sales. And she's earning wow. a couple thousand dollars a month of profits after being a, a maid in Manila and earning $200 a month. So oh. you know, we have some success stories, but most of them simply double household income and are able to now buy clothing and send their kids to school and uh, maybe buy a new house or build a house somewhere. Wow, that's so wonderful. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, with, with Professor Clayton, his, his paradigm of, hey, if you look at these levers of the private sector to help out of poverty, there's a lot of research, like the Sustainable Development Goals now have these public-private partnership focuses. And, you know, there's a real, um, I think there's a real solid thesis around helping people help themselves by giving them the tools to, to pl you know, play effectively in the free market. And I think that that's really fascinating that you guys have chosen that. And simultaneously, I can't think of a better way to learn than to teach as, a, you know, as a student um, and have real li life experience. And to go live abroad and all of that. What a stunning program. Um, was it something you came up with, Mike? It's so awesome. It, was actually, it started as a class project over 10 years ago with one professor and he was raising some money and sending students to Peru. And, you know, it needed, it needed a home. It wasn't going to work as a class. Uh, mm -hmm. So the dean said, we're either going to cancel this program or someone has to adopt it. So I quickly grabbed it and brought it into the Center for Entrepreneurship and We've kind of grown it from a handful of students to over a hundred students a year now, and uh, it's That's really nice. life changing for them. They they all yes. come back. They basically say two things. Number one is, I didn't I didn't know I hit the jackpot in life. I didn't know mm -hmm. I won the lottery. And then the second thing they say is, you know, I want to be I want to be a giver. I want to uh, give back, not be a taker, and continue to do service in my life and. So, Beautiful. you know, these students go out into job interviews and they're just in high demand because of what they have done. And, you know, people love the experience they've had. They love the character that they've developed. And uh, you need to come with yeah. us and one of the trips and come see what we're doing sometime. I would absolutely love that. I've actually spent my early part of my career doing humanitarian work in developed countries and spent my entire career in social impact and social entrepreneurship. And I... um currently work on several programs that focus on leadership and entrepreneurship training, both in Eswatini, Africa, which used to be formerly known as Swaziland and in Guatemala. So I'd love to talk to you offline about all that, how we might be able to support the program. How I understand you guys are in Ghana. How did you guys end up there uh, within Ghana? I'm curious. Who's your partner on the ground that delivers uh, you these uh, opportunities with the students? So we try to have several partners in every country it's you know again it's, it's the quest for excellence we're trying to be the best poverty alleviation program in the world uh, like we tried to do in our business and so that combines that requires combining a lot of partial solutions so we need an organ we need organizations that bring us people to teach because our students can't go out knocking on doors looking for people they're only there three months at a time and then we need micro lending partners that if the, stu if the companies need, you know, money for inventory or prototypes, we need to be able to get them some money. And uh, the part that we do is we do the training. And the most important part in success in getting people out of poverty is the ongoing mentoring. You can't just teach them in a class and give them some money and say good luck. And so we're the mentoring company. 
that'll stay on for months and even years. And so wow. in Gumpen, uh, we do work at the Ensign Global College over there on, in the Pong region. And we also work with Mentors International. They're our lending partner on them. Uh, they have a micro lending fund and they have, you know, um, the ability to find people for us to teach. So we just, I just heard last week, we announced, we went to a new village and announced that we would be teaching classes and how to start and build a business. And the students uh, got back to us and said 250 people showed up to that initial meeting. So wow. we're te teaching, we've taught over 10,000 people around the world. And, Amazing, uh, Mike, and doubling their income each year. That's incredible. So I, I wondered about Enzyme because that, that's probably Bob Gay's and Engage now Africa's organization. Is that right? Yeah, is Bob Gay's uh, my neighbor here in Salt Lake City. And, and we've Amazing. been over at Sign College several times. Uh, Incredible. We, have, we actually have a house over there the students live in, and there's four to six students there at any given time. Amazing. So yeah, Bob, Bob is a, a friend and we, I really admire him and his, his daughter-in-law, uh, Gabrielle, that's been helping with Enzyme. She was telling me about these partnerships with universities. So this is so wonderful that it's accredited. It's full service. I'd love to talk to you again offline. In Eswatini, we actually have housing that could accommodate. We have partners on the ground. I think this might be a really exciting thing. How do you pick the sites? How do you pick these partners? Is it the catcher's mitt, like I'm describing, and funding that's available? Is that kind of how you view that? No, we, we have some criteria that we have to meet. We're a, you know, a public university and uh, we have yeah. a risk community and safety is the biggest factor. And mm -hmm. so number one, the country has to be rated number one or two by the U.S. State Department mm -hmm. in safety. We can't go to level three or level four countries. Oh, um, that's good to know. We have to have an international airport so we can get students in and out quickly. We can't put them somewhere where they can't get a flight out for a week or 10 days. So an international mm -hmm. airport. Uh, we need good health care facilities, clinics, hospitals that needed. Um, and then we need partners. We need partners that find us people to teach, that have facilities. And then we need a lending partner that has funds available. And so we, we uh, have partners we already have, like Mentors International. We kind of have gone where they go, and they, they've actually gone where we go sometimes. And so we're collaborating cool. with the partners yeah. that we have. Amazing. We have so many mutual friends. My my friends, the Webb family from Operation Kits has been supporting a program that was acquired by Mentors International recently called Elevate Business. And they kind of, oh, yeah. they, 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 they focus on this mentoring, this missing middle, just below, above the abject poverty line, but they provide loans and then the training. So, the, I mean, I've seen this done really well and I'm really thrilled to hear about what you're doing at the university. Thanks for all you're doing. And Mike, I, I think... Um, I'd be so dying to hear you talk about these that you've interviewed, you know, billionaires like David Nieleman and you've interviewed startups and you've looked at thousands and thousands of case studies as an academic and as a researcher trying to see what are the common core values or behaviors or principles that make a successful business. I'd love to hear, like, I don't know what kind of synopsis you can share about what are the things our audience can learn? Like, okay. The company I'm either working for, investing in, or I'm starting, do I have these these principles, these these outlying outlying um, important factors that seem to be a high correlation or causation for success? We'd love to hear about that. So, just a quick backstory: when I sold my uh, company, our larger company, uh, I was interested in going back to the university, and I was recruited by several universities, and I was really surprised at what was being taught in 
the way of entrepreneurship. It didn't resemble anything I'd done as an entrepreneur. It was professors who had read lots of books and they had degrees in strategy or management and they were now teaching entrepreneurship. And, and so I started what I call the Oral History Project over 20 years ago. And I started collecting uh, data from successful entrepreneurs that were moving into industries and starting to pick up market share. And I've been doing that pretty much every year for t over 20 years. And so we have this huge database. And what we do is we look at the database, we put the, uh, we cut up the interviews into categories or buckets of content. And then we pull from that content to create courses. And so, yes, we definitely found, uh, you know, a handful of things that are present in almost every single successful startup that are not present in those that fail. Wow. And, uh, and we actually, that's gold. Cool, that information. Yeah. That's, oh, sorry to interrupt you. That just yeah, say that's invaluable. So a few years ago, we, we were noticing all these small town entrepreneurs that were building national and international companies in places that were really attracted to live. And so we wrote, we did a bike ride, a bicycle ride. We rode from the West Coast to the East Coast and interviewed a hundred of these successful companies and, and produced a book called Main Street Entrepreneur that summarizes, you know, nine keys to building a successful business. And so that's where we've kind of uh, presented the findings in that that book, um, but you know, I'd be happy to talk about some of those if you'd be interested. Oh yeah, so nine. I'd love to hear about a nine if you have the capacity to talk at them in the highlight. I'm sure you've had. To, I'm sure you've had to give the synopsis many times uh, as a consultant, as a speaker, as a professor. Probably have this uh, memorized. Well, let me let me give you a few real quick. The first one, and this almost this is so trite, you hear it over and over and over again. But they had a very strong purpose for why they were building a business. And the last hundred we interviewed, only three of them even mentioned money as a factor in starting the company. So they don't they don't start businesses to make a lot of money. They do it because they want to solve a problem that they're really passionate about, or they want to create jobs for their family members, or they want to create jobs for people in their city. They want to solve a problem that they've been wrestling with. They want to get better service than the big corporations they have something that's really driving them that's meaningful so they don't win because you know building companies is very hard it takes longer it costs more and they earn less and you struggle and and if you don't have something driving you that's more meaningful than money they usually quit and so they were able to describe for us all of them why they were doing this and they were very powerful and important reasons uh the next one's interesting they they pretty much all start businesses in areas that they understand well. And that doesn't mean they've worked in the area. About a third of them have worked in the area in which they started their business. About a third of them have worked in related areas, adjacent industries. But a third of them were what we call user entrepreneurs. They had no industry experience, but they loved and used the products continually. And they knew them so well from a customer's perspective. Wow. And they tend to be the more successful user entrepreneurs with some industry experience tend to be the most successful. Fascinating. Well, then we say that another one that they launch a true business opportunity versus an idea. And so an idea is something you think up in the morning, you know, in the shower or sitting on the couch or uh, <laughs> an opportunity has some components to it. And if these five components are present, your odds for success go up dramatically. And so we always, we try to test the idea against these criteria for a true business opportunity. And one of them is experience in the industry to some degree, at least as a user. Another yes. one is having 
basic resources to cobble together a minimal viable product or a prototype to, to do an experiment to test the market. Um, one is you have to vent the need through firsthand research, interviewing with potential customers that say, if you do that, I'll buy it rather than survey research or secondary data. Uh, and the business model has to make sense. There, you usually want a 10 to 20% profit margin uh, in a startup company within the first few years, eventually. So anyway, we have these criteria for a true business opportunity. That's wonderful. Uh, I, you know, it's another, interesting. Oh, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but there's a little bit of a delay, but I was going to say, Mel Torrey was my first interview on this podcast series, and I understand that you introduced him to Jess Larson, who introduced him to me. So thank you for that. And I was just thinking about what you said about his experience to build his successful business was he was one of the users. He had to sit for hours on a tractor as a farmer and thought, if I can create um, some kind of, you know, artificial intelligence, some kind of robotics that can do this and save all this time, it was very much. And then, of course, he's very purpose driven and has all these qualities yeah. you're describing. That's the tip. Yeah. The typical story, a couple of others real quick. One, one is frugality. Most of them bootstrap the startup. They don't go out and raise a lot of money or go into debt. They, they create something they can sell. It may not be exactly what they want to build in the long run, but they create something they can sell and they're focused on sales to generate cash flow and a lot of them build with their own resources. So they don't create a successful business, but a financial failure due to the debt they acquire. Um, customer service is off the charts. Customers are number one. They, they go way beyond and uh, wow customers with better support, better guarantees, better follow-up, more interaction. So there's a bunch of things like that. But the, the one that surprised us the most that you would be interested in is we didn't expect this one. They... They actually were heavily involved in community social projects. They were they were giving oh. communities the thinking would go, hey, we would not be where we are without these customers. What can we do to this community? And they were teaching school classes. They were donating computers. They were, uh, you know, doing all kinds of things, mentoring students at risk. Uh, you know, one cool organization in Idaho, it's called Idaho Sewing for Sports. They make... Uh, padding for ski lifts, the padding that you sit on and the padding around the towers. And yeah, it's a seasonal business. And rather than lay their employees off, they'd say, okay, we're slow now, but we'll, we'll keep paying you for 40 hours a week, but 20 hours a week, we want you to go out and do service projects in your community. So they, wow. they get paint houses and move furniture and re-roof houses and clean up yards and so they were just doing these amazing things and building this incredible goodwill that was so powerful for them, for their team members and their employees and for the community in which they operated. Wow. And so that was another one of the factors we saw. That's an amazing and insight, Mike. I love that. It validates my worldview. I mean, for sure, just that if you do good, good comes back to you, that there's this, you know, karmic virtuous cycle in the world that you can gain trust by being trustworthy, essentially, you know, and do things that are really blessing the lives of others, people will eventually want to, to bless you. And I think that's wonderful. That's so cool. Well, it's this new, new age entrepreneur, the younger generation, all of our students, they want to be social entrepreneurs, but they yes. realize that 
for-profit company is more sustainable than a non-profit company. So they want to build yes. for-profit companies that generate revenue that will sustain their their desired or loved social cause. And uh, we're just seeing, you know, we we as entrepreneurs can solve problems far better than than governments. And uh, we we've been suffering with social problems from the beginning of time, and uh, yes. we still have them. And you know, private organizations are really good at addressing and solving these problems. Absolutely. And you know, what's really interesting is there will always be a place for nonprofit because there are some places where you um, can't monetize, for example, you know, the mental health of, of a veteran or, you know, vulnerable ch children living in foster care. There's certain places where there just won't be in a way to quote, and this is not a, this be opportunistic, you know, financially for the opportunity. Um, but but you can solve economic problems and you can say further upstream, we can have these down downstream financial issues and still at the end of the day, use an entrepreneur's mindset to solve these problems so that it's something that hits your head, your heart and your wallet, you know. And I think the best nonprofits I've ever consulted and worked with in my career, which I have had the incredible honor of working with hundreds in various capacities as a consultant, running some, consulting some, partnering with some, I've just had extensive exposure the ones that really thrive are the ones that have private sector mindset. They think like business people. They run it like a business. They know that it is a business. 95% of all nonprofits fail in the first five years. And, uh, you know, most people start these charities and they just think like it's kind of a moonlighting side gig that's a passion project. But meanwhile, I have my day job and it's like those epically fail and you actually deter the success of the other ones that are there full time doing it day in, day out because you're taking donor confidence away when someone invests in something that is bellies up in five years, which is, again, 95 percent of the time. So my biggest suggestion to people and they want to make a difference is I'm like, you know, stay in the private sector or make a difference in these other ways like you're describing or get behind someone who's already doing something really well because this is not for the faint of heart. But I love what you're saying. It's really powerful. Yeah, I actually I wrote. One of the early books on social entrepreneurship called The Business of Heart, it was published in 1999. And wow. part of our oral history project, I interviewed 100 social entrepreneurs and, uh, you know, uh, Give Kids the World, Henry Landworth and Mimi Silbert of Delancey Street and Anthony Kennedy Shriver and Best Buddies. And they all, the best ones, um, whether they were a for-profit or a non-profit, they solved two problems. They solved their financing problem in some way. And they solved their labor problem. Yes. And with fine, you know, like Give Kids the World, they they uh, partnered with a number of organizations like Disney and, uh, you know, NASCAR and Procter & Gamble that actually provide the funding and even provide employees for those services. So they were able to solve those two problems and then focus, you know, almost all their time on their mission rather than trying to trying to figure out how to raise money and become sustainable. So it's. Whether it's a non-profit or for-profit, it's this entrepreneurial mindset of sufficiency yes. and sustainability. And yes. uh, I don't, you, I'd say the only difference between a non-profit and a for-profit is an accounting function for the federal government. Uh, totally. You still need strategic, you still need marketing, you yes. still need team building. Yes, so, thank you. Amen, Mike. Because, you know, a lot of times I, I, I meet people that are so brilliant at business and I'm like, OK, you have your business hat on and you throw it in the garbage when you start to do your charity stuff. What, what, where's this disconnect? Like it's it needs the same rigor, the same um, expectation, the same principles, the same levers. In fact, I 
just recently executive produced a documentary called Uncharitable that's based on Dan Pilata's work. I don't know if you've ever seen his TED Talk, The Way We Think of Charity's Dead Wrong. But we're releasing a documentary about oh, yeah. Yeah. how we demonize overhead and paying people well and spending money on marketing and taking risk and all these things that we know are absolutely critical in the private sector. And yet we demonize the nonprofit sector, which is, I believe, incredibly archaic and harming our ability to make the world better. So anyway, I love what you're saying. And so right now, I mean, are you currently consulting as well? Or are you are you full time with the university and then running these incredible programs like Seed? So I'm doing several things. Uh, I run the Center for Entrepreneurship and I'm focusing most of my time on building the Seed program. Uh, we're raising funding to make it to institutionalize it permanently at the university, which Wonderful. we're doing. We're expanding into some new countries. And, uh, but then I'm, my new project, my new book's called One People, One Planet, and we've developed a civility program for, we have a university course in uh, happiness and civility, and we have a corporate training program in civility in organizations. And we're really, really putting a lot of time and resources into, you know, addressing two epidemics, the epidemic of despair in our country and the epidemic of incivility. And how do we teach that at high school, college level? And then how do we incorporate those practices into our uh, organizations? So wow. that's where, that's our big project right now. Well, wow, Mike, that phrase, the epidemic of incivility. I mean, I can't think of a more, I've never heard anyone quite like that, but that is unequivocally what's happening today. I look at how polarized we are in our us and them narratives and our politics and our, you know, religious differences and our race dynamic, like we have so much polarization. And one of the most heartbreaking things of the utility that is social media is that people can sit behind a screen and absolutely espouse horrific incivilities on others without thinking twice about the consequences. And we're now starting to understand the impact that our behavior and our words have. What is it you kind of are focusing on when you think of that? And what is the solution, Lori? I guess help us understand, because I think you, you know, you highlighting that is, um, is paramount in today's culture. So the, the first epidemic, I'll be brief, epidemic of despair, you probably know that uh, every age demographic, we're seeing more anxiety, depression, loneliness, suicide. It's really frightening. And at the high school and college level, it's, it's probably the worst. You know, 40% of our college students say they're so depressed at times they just can't do any schoolwork. And 60% say they're lonely. Uh, at the high school level, 20% of high school students recently have said they've thought about suicide. And then nationwide, uh, the numbers 21% of adults over 18 are experiencing some kind of diagnosable mental or emotional illness. So in an organization... Now, if you have an organization of 100 people, that'd be 20 plus that could be really suffering from an emotional mm -hmm. challenge. And if you have 1,000 people, it could be over 200 of your employees. And the research shows that if people come to work with emotional challenges, on very difficult for them to do their work. They're not as productive. They uh, have more absenteeism. They're higher costs. The communication's not as good. The energy level's low. And so that's the first epidemic, the epidemic of incivility. There's quite a bit of re really recent research showing that, you know, 90% of people surveyed say that they've seen an act of incivility at work and 50% say they see it weekly. 
And there's quite a bit of research that if incivility exists, people lose their commitment to the organization. They're out looking for something new. They, uh, about 70% of them say their effort declines. And so, you know, our, my interest was, are there some practices that have been vetted over time that actually can help us become happier as individuals and more civil as communities? And so that was the, you know, the motivation behind the new book, uh, the subtitle wow. Six Universal Truths for Being Happy Together. So it addresses those, basically those two challenges uh, in the educational wow. world as the corporate world. Wow. What important challenges. And you really nailed it. I've, I've uh, worked extensively in advocating raising money and awareness around mental health um, issues, destigmatizing it and trying to find interventions. And you, you really nailed it. When I was a professor, again, I spent all of my office hours basically playing like a pseudo therapist. I mean, I, I didn't try to be a therapist, but I just listened. I mean, in a way, it was like a mock exchange and just interpersonal you know, care and listening because these students would just come fill my hours because they knew I loved them and I would just listen. And I can't tell you how many of them were having just total mental health crises. And I felt fortunate that I'd had had my own lived experience with mental ill health so that I could, with anxiety, depression, I had had my own lived experiences so I could be incredibly empathetic and in solidarity and understand and be, um, and point to remarkable healing tools and resources and people. Um, but I will say that now that I'm thriving and I've and I found healing through my journey of just, you know, fighting with everything I had to to get well. Um, what do you think the answer is? Do you are you looking at that research and saying, here's what's going on? I know there's a lot of conversation. I love your thoughts about it. And then and then what are you looking to as interventions or tools and how, you know, because you're identifying the problem, I think is unequivocally correct. But how do we get here and what do we do about it? So, Lindsay, we could spend another whole hour podcast just on this topic. Uh, For sure. But I'll try to, try to be brief. The, the first thing that I did is I wanted to look at credible sources for solutions. And, you know, believe it or not, the first place I turned was to all the ancient religious texts from the top world religions, the founders of the world religions, the Hindu writings from the Vedas, the Buddhist writings from the Pali Canon. I looked at the, or Christianity is my faith. And then I looked at the, I studied uh, Islamic, the Islamic faith and Islamic law for several years and read through the Quran and the Hadith and the Sunnahs. And, and so I, what I found is that these religions differ on some of the mystical things like, is there a God and is there heaven and hell? And did we live before we were born? But they agree almost 100% on how to be happy on the earth and how to have civil communities. And so I kept noticing these similarities and these common principles that were being taught over and over again, you know, I kind of ignored all the factions and the contention and the breakaways from these faiths and just looked at the original writings of the founders and found some really amazing principles about how to be happy and civil together on the planet. The next thing I did, I know a lot of people don't like organized religion, so I went to philosophy and looked at the the Asian philosophers, the Greek and Roman philosophers, to see what did they write about personal happiness and civility in communities. And then to get real credibility in our modern world, I spent a number of months studying the, the research in positive psychology from the last 20 years, from the late 1990s, 
and found that those same concepts have been vetted uh, hundreds of times through research. So the three sources of knowledge for the principles were uh, the writings of our great spiritual founders, the writings of our philosophers, and then modern science. And I combined those three to introduce six concepts that they, they produce results in real time. If you do them right now today, you'll be happier today. And if you do them over a longer period of time, they become a more permanent part of our character. And so the book, um, you know, One People, One Planet, Six Universal Truths for Being Happy Together, lays those out through stories of people we met that have uh, gone from deep, dark despair to great joy. And we're using that book as the basis for our university courses and for our corporate uh, civility training courses. Wow. Mike, you are a treasure. You're like an international treasure to us all. Like, I'm just sitting here thinking out loud, but your your ability to see patterns like you did in business, um, which makes total sense. You're, you have an entrepreneur brain. I think at the crux of entrepreneurs, besides all these incredible characters and pillars and opportunities, there is a wiring that sees patterns and then relentlessly tries to use those patterns to make sense of the world, to move forward in a meaningful way. And it makes sense that you've figured that out, whether it's in teaching in entrepreneurship and in this case, in addressing major societal feels like poverty and anxiety and depression, mental health, uh, things like incivility and the dehumanizing of others like that, that we're seeing so much on deck these days. I think it's um, really stunning to hear how your brain works. And I'm so grateful that you've given your life to share these insights. Can you share the I'm so dying to understand these six principles because I haven't read your new book, but I'm 1 million percent going to. And I, you better look out because I'm like an ultimate evangelist. If I love something, I end up giving it to everybody, promoting it. Yeah, it's going to be really fun. But I feel like I'm I'm going to be obsessed with this book um, because, you know, I feel like if every mental health professional and every thought leader and every self-help person and whatever, whatever the platform is to try to help people find healing could in could identify those six principles, then we could build around kind of um, a structure, you know, like I think if you have that context, then if people understand, okay, these are the pillars of of opportunities. A friend of mine named Chris Smith, he created a, a business called Family Brand, and he looked at similar to you research of, of really successful families that, you know, generationally have had a lot of intimacy, closeness, joy, um, functioning very high as a family relationship. And he found seven principles, again, that like he could identify. And then he built the entire business around helping families uh, identify, understand, and implement these principles. So I love that this is so practical and so um, sensible that you can come up with these six things that will help you find more joy and peace. Can you share some of those too? I know, like you said, these are all like, we could talk for hours. I'm like, uh, how can I just sit at your feet and shine your shoes so I could learn all of this? But um yeah, share with me, share with me some of these six. Um, how fascinating that every world religion, I've always said this, um, not doing the research, not doing the hard work to justify this, but I've always innately said, I feel like every faith has the same ultimate intention is pointing towards the same light. We have different modalities or particulars of, of um, how that is expressed. But at the end of the day, there are some eternal truths. And, you know, I, 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 I also am a, come from a Christian faith, but I feel like there are, there are just capital T truths that humanity is built upon. And if we hold on to those, uh, beauty comes out of it always. So I'd love to hear what you found. So that was my quest to find the big T truths. And then 
of course, in my profession to vet them through science was really important or they wouldn't be as well. Yes. Now they appeal to everyone, I think. And beautiful. Uh, interesting. The, the philosopher, the European philosophers in the 15th century created a concept called perennial philosophy. And they addressed this very issue. They said that there, there are truths that keep surfacing in society over and over and over again. And whether they come from a God or a Supreme being or a universal force, perennial philosophy means anyone that seeks truth on human happiness and civility will get the same answers, whether it's 5,000 years ago wow. or 2,000 years ago. And so this has been really an intriguing project for me. But basically, the I can mention them real quickly. The, the first one, we, we say give up the ego. And this is, this is important. This is where you start. Mm -hmm. You start yourself. And the ego doesn't mean you're proud or haughty or you think you're cool. The way it's been defined for thousands of years in this ancient literature is the ego is your complete composite of self-perceptions. Who do you think you are? Where did those wow. come from? What are these limiting self-perceptions that have been fed to you when you're young through teachers and parents and peers and even the media? And they're limiting and they're holding you back and you have to address where did this gestalt of worldview about me come from and how do I change that? Uh, because wow. talked about in the ancient literature is a fabrication. The ego is a fabrication or an illusion. It's right. who, we, who we really are. Totally. So step number one is to look inside and say, I've got all these self-perceptions that they're not real. The second one is to refrain from judging others. So we develop perceptions of others in the same way we develop perceptions of ourselves. And because humans are very complicated and our brains are more simple, we see superficial cues like race or color or ethnicity or religious practice or, you know, a political party. And we then fill in all the missing pieces and these fabricated personalities for groups. And the problem with happiness is that divides us and we don't want to interact with those groups. So it limits the number of people that we develop friendships with. So learning to our biases and quit judging. And we, we have our students and corporate leaders go through the Harvard implicit bias tests to wow. how they're viewing groups. The next one is probably the most powerful for medicine for today. It's doing good deeds daily. It's the random acts of kindness. And there's so much literature that serving others, uh, getting up every morning instead of saying, me, 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 do I look right? Is my hair right? Am I wearing the right clothes? Am I going to say the right things today? We get up and say, hey, I'm a work in progress. I'm not perfect, but I can add value. Who can I go help today? And you're always watchful for ways to, to add value to other people's lives. And, you know, we have our students do three acts of kindness every day for a period of time. And they kind of journal what happens. And the mindset that they develop in a short period of time is unbelievable. They, they go from being anxious and depressed to feeling like they have value and they're making friends. And. Anyway, the fourth one has to do with forgiveness and anger and grudges and forgiveness. Wow. wow. There's probably as much research on this one as any of them. There's a professor at the University of Wisconsin who's done over 100 studies. And if we hang on to grudges and anger, it only hurts us and it poisons us. It poisons our mental uh, chem chemistry, which poisons our physical body. And one of the great uh, teachings of Buddha, I love this. He said, with regards to anger and grudges, there's three kinds of people. There's one that's like a line etched in stone. That line stays there for a long time. 
There's another one that's like a line etched in the dirt, and that stays for a while, but eventually goes away. And he said, the happiest people are the ones that are like a line etched in the water. Something oh, happens. Oh, that's beautiful. And they allow it to dissipate. You know, you, in other words, you say, hey, I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Why should I be angry and hold a grudge against you? Because you can be different tomorrow. And yeah. I can be different. Oh, my gosh. I, that is so beautiful. I mean, and you've mentioned four now. I just want to say that I, one of the things that led to my mental ill health, there's a calamity of things, but when I was struggling severely with depression was interpersonal relationships with people. I, I still, I love to this day, but where I found all the healing was total forgiveness. Funny enough of myself, I always kind of forgave the people. I always saw them with compassion and that was an easier thing for me. Um, and, but I would, I would absolutely take on in kind of a codependent way, you know, that something's not right about me. Uh, you know, I did this. This is why they're upset at me. And then that created such deep self-shame because, but once I realized, like I'm, like you said, I'm a work in progress and I saw myself in this, in this view of love and in totality and, and, and I'm continuing to learn to do that better. I just had complete whole body forgiveness for these people. And I'm completely changed my chemistry, my dynamic, along with all the other important things that, you know, you do to get healing. It wasn't that simple, but that was a very, important part so i that resonates with me and um, my ability to love others and see people compassionately has just increased i'm so grateful for the experience i had for those those painful dynamics because they brought me so much closer to these principles of faith um these principles that you're describing that bring joy and peace so and it's just an incredible experience i love this so those are four what were the other two so the next one has to do with attachment to, to the physical world, material things. And, uh, you know, the Hindus and the Buddhists and Christ and Muhammad all taught that if we, if we become attached to the worldly things, it leads to sorrow in the end because we end up being greedy. We end up hoarding. We end up fearing that we're going to lose what we have. And there's quite a bit of research that this is true, that we start devaluing things if we start gathering and hoarding things. And the research shows that we're, if we're generous, we're far happier that all these principles and especially generosity affects level of cortisol and adrenaline and the neurotransmitters in our brains, which affects our mindset, moves us into a more calm state. And then that eventually affects our physiology. But just being generous, having our basic needs met and being generous and sharing uh, is so important. And I, you know, we had a neat experience while I was writing the book. We remodeled our home and we had to move everything out, all of our books and furniture and appliances and clothing. And when the home was done, we looked at all the stuff and said, you know, do we really want to bring all that stuff back in the house? And I ended up giving away probably 70% of my clothes, nice suits and things that people needed that I hadn't worn for a long uh, time. And wow. And our, for at least for the time being, our home is really nicely decluttered and we just feel so much joy being in it and grateful for what we were able to, to give to others that we were just, that was just sitting in our home. And so that's wonderful. My material attachment to material things is, is the fifth one. And then the sixth one, it's, it's kind of an outgrowth or a subset of doing good deeds. It's, it's caring for the needy in our community. And, you know, if every one person found someone that was suffering and we just said, I'm going to make a little longer term commitment to help this friend out of this challenge. And we all, all were doing that. There's so much evidence that the community becomes stronger 
that people become happier and more civil. And so being mindful that there are people that, that don't have what we have and they really need our help. And I like to say our, our misery is our mission. So whatever we've suffered through, we're really good at helping other people climb out of that. And so you, you mentioned some of your struggles. You're really good at talking to people about probably anxiety and depression. You know how to get out of it. You've been there and you know how to get out. And I've had yeah. anxiety over business deals and I've learned how to manage that. And so you find, you yeah. look at where are your skills and can you go contribute to an organization? Can you volunteer long-term? Can yeah. you get out, in, out into the community and serving the broader community? So wow. those are the concepts. And, um, wow. and I, again, wanted to write a simple book. All the, the research is there and everything is documented in the back of the book, but I didn't want to clutter it with footnotes and references in the book. And I wanted to tell the story through, uh, I wanted to teach the principles through the stories of people that have kind of been there and, and climbed out. And so it's really a book of just marvelous stories of ex-convicts and people rescued from the slave trade and drug addicts and uh, people that are some of the happiest people that I've ever met and interviewed. Oh, that's so beautiful. Mike, this has been the most enlightening, edifying conversation. I'm so grateful to you for your life and the legacy of goodness that you've given so many people. I mean, 10,000 people's life transformed through the programs you're working on, thousands of students, thousands of businesses, happy customers who have slimmer waistlines thanks to your frozen humor. <laughs> Everybody is so blessed by just the beauty of who you are. I'm so grateful to meet you and to have you on our, our Capita podcast. Thank you again for being here and for um, what you're doing. I'd love to see how we can involve you more in what we're doing at Capita. We, we really believe in long-term accounting with people and, and radical generosity. Um, sometimes we joke it's reckless generosity because, you know, we just want to give, give, give. Um, we, be we believe and see that it, inherently always comes back. And so um, we put together a lot of like, you know, engagements where uh, individuals like you can meet other people. And I think it'd be wonderful to connect with you offline about participating in some of our experiences and events to meet the wonderful high capacity and high character people that we work with. Because um, I think they'd be wonderful uh, allies in your quest for all this goodness. So thank you so much, Mike, for being here today. And I'm so appreciative of you. And I can't wait to read your book. So thanks again. We'll We'll definitely have to keep in touch. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. Do you need help with the next steps for your financial plan? Think Capita. Capita is a financial network built around you. They have a team of financial advisors, CPAs, estate attorneys, Medicare providers, and social security experts to help you accomplish your financial goals. Call to schedule a complimentary consultation at 801-566-5058 or visit their website at www.capitafinancialnetwork.com. You can also check out their financial education podcast, The Financial Call, available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and YouTube.